Reflections on T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 4 Simon Weiss said, There is the real presence of God in everything which imagination does not veil. Now that's using imagination in a different way, isn't it? There is the real presence of God in everything which the imagination does not veil. And to, 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 to talk about the imagination which veils and the imagination which unveils, Apocalypse is, a, is an, an apocalyptic imagination is an imagination that's unveiling. To distinguish between them, sometimes uh, people talk about fancy as the veiling imagination and imagination, creative imagination, as the unveiling imagination. And Eliot often uses that word fancy. He said in Burton Norton, he said what's required is the evacuation of the world of fancy. And he has just performed one of those little evacuations on this scene. And then he goes on. Dawn points. See, this scene in the field took place at nighttime, over the course of the, of the night. Dawn points, and another day prepares for heat and silence. Damn. You say, wait a minute. Another day of heat and silence. That's the, what we, we're trying to have a, a day that has more... It's more interesting than that, you see. Can't we get? Can't we get our? Uh, can't can't we retrieve the the world of fancy a little bit to have a day that's not just heat and silence? Dawn points and another day prepares for heat and silence. Out at sea, the dawn wind wrinkles and slides. Now there's the thing, you see. <laughs> oh. The wind is the panuma, the spirit, and the dawn wind, the wind of a new day that comes after we have refused to indulge in the in the fantasies and in the and the nostalgia. The dawn wind, what we want. See, here's the thing about the wind. You know, the spirit blows where it will. That's just a big pain in the neck that the spirit blows where it will. The, what we what we want is we want the spirit to blow that blow through that door and show us we want a spirit that does for us what what the the deep lane that insists on the direction into the village did for those in the in the vanguard we want the spirit to blow through here and let us know which way is which right that's what we want and that's what we've been told the spirit will do for us and Elliot has another message. Elliot, who's been, you know, wetting his finger and sticking it up in that wind for a long time. <laughs> he said, I want to tell you something else about the dawn wind. It wrinkles and slides. Oh. <laughs> oh, my, my. You have to have the, what's called discernment of the Spirit. Discernment of the Spirit. It's not going to knock you over. It wrinkles and slides. I am here or there or elsewhere in my beginning. Now, there's someone who has renounced the cheap solutions to the problem. And uh, 
is not willing to take the to return to the to the weak pipes and the bonfires, nor is he willing to take the the insistent deep lane into the village with the hypnosis and electricity. I want to comment on the word dawn points because I think it is another reference to, to Milton's ode on the morning of Christ's nativity. You see, the incarnation is continues to be at the heart of these poems and that Milton's poem would have been important for Eliot because it is a poem about the incarnation. I quoted the, the stanza in that poem uh, earlier which in which the uh, he refers to the axle tree of the sun uh, being uh, being replaced by the incarnation. The very next stanza, Milton writes this: "The shepherds on the lawn, or ere the point of dawn, sat simply chatting in a rustic row." Now this is interesting because we just had a little rustic scene. So he says, the shepherds, right before they got news of the Incarnation, were sitting in a little rustic scene like that. The shepherds on the lawn, or ere the point of dawn, sat simply chatting in a rustic row. Full, full little thought they than that, than in, in Miltonic English means then, Full little thought they then that the mighty Pan was kindly come to live with them below. Perhaps their love or else their sheep was all that did their silly thoughts so busy keep. So this is these are the little rustic ones who are in that pattern, that that primordial pattern, and something else breaks into that which is the Incarnation. And it break, breaks in at the point of dawn. And so Eliot says, dawn points. Eliot made reference earlier to the light falls across the open field, a sense of it being uh, twilight, and then he goes through the night now he returns to a seasonal reference to the same thing. It's late autumn. But, we're, but we don't get a picture of things being reconciled the way we did in a comparable section in Burnt Norton where he said, We move above the figured leaf and here upon the sodden floor below the boarhound and the boar pursue their pattern as before, but reconciled among the stars. We, the stars are doing something altogether different in East Coker. And that's probably because we're a little bit closer to the, to the uh, conflagration that became World War II. So Eliot says, What is the late November doing with the disturbance of the spring and creatures of the summer heat and snowdrops writhing under feet and hollyhocks that aim too high, red into gray and tumble down, late roses filled with early snow. Picture here of the seasons, seasonal cycle uh, confused and commingled and seasons 
things that belong to one season appearing in another season. And everything is confused. It's late November, but, but we see signs of spring and summer and winter. And what is going on? And the next three lines look, look toward the eventual air war, the eventual blitzkrieg. Thunder rolled by the rolling stars, simulates triumphal cars, deployed in constellated wars. Scorpion fights against the sun until the sun and moon go down. Comets weep and leonids fly, hunt the heavens and the plains. Scorpion is the Scorpios is the sun for late October through late November, and it's fights against the sun in, in that uh, uh, winter is coming on, cold weather is coming on. Uh, but now sun and moon are going down, comets weep, leonids fly. Leonid is a two-day uh, meteor shower uh, around the middle or just after the middle of November, uh, and they appear to be coming from the constellation Leo. So these uh, signs and portents of something terrible happening. Comets weep and leonids fly, hunt the heavens and the plains, whirl in a vortex that shall bring the world to that destructive fire which burns before the ice cap rains. Now, boy, there is a three lines for you. Whirl in a vortex that shall bring the world to that destructive fire which burns before the ice cap rains. Now, one of the things that we think from time to time has exempted itself from entropy and mortality is history. And Eliot's showing in those lines that it is not exempt. Nothing is exempt. Eliot had entered a period of great depression in the, uh, not, not so much psychological depression as a depression over the condition of Western civilization and in 1938 and 39, and had come to think that there, maybe there's nothing at the heart of Western civilization other than, other than uh, commerce. A sense of uh, surrender, a prayer for grace, Lord, I am not worthy, but speak the word only. It's that, that's what Ellie is trying to lead, lead his readers to. Uh, a sense that, uh, that we really are in need of redemption. But what we do generally is that we uh, just try a little harder. And so he puts these two lines in here, which I think are fascinating. Hollyhocks that aim too high, red into gray, and tumble down. It's that time of year when the, when the long stalks of the hollyhock uh, fall with, this, with their blossoms still on them. But Eliot has turned that image into a, a, an analysis of what we try to do in these periods of, of, of confusion and how pathetic it, it really is. And so I think what Eliot wants to do is cut off our avenues of escape, cut off our uh, retreat into some, into some small and, and, uh, and uh, eventually impotent hope so that we'll turn elsewhere. So 
one of the things we might have in our heads as we look around on the contemporary scene is this phrase, hollyhocks the dame too high, red into gray, and tumble down. And you, then we could apply that. We see things. We turn on the 6 o'clock news and, and uh, get the latest piece of uh, confident reassurance about something or other. And occasionally we'll, we'll may, may find that, that, that those two lines apply to it. Hollyhocks that aim too high, red into gray, and tumble down. So let me just read the lines through and feel the, the texture and the power of this poetry. What is the late November doing with the disturbance of the spring and creatures of the summer heat and snowdrops writhing under feet and hollyhocks that aim too high, red into gray, and tumble down, late roses filled with early snow? Thunder rolled by the rolling stars simulates triumphal cars deployed in constellated wars. Scorpion fights against the sun until the sun and moon go down. Comets, comets weep and leonids fly. Hunt the heavens and the plains, world in a vortex that shall bring the world to that destructive fire which burns before the ice cap rains. And we say, wow. And the next line is, that was a way of putting it. <laughs> Not very satisfactory. A paraphrastic study in a worn-out poetical fashion, leaving one still with the intolerable wrestle with words and meanings. The poetry does not matter. And I think he meant that from the bottom of his heart. Isn't that something? Pascal said, True eloquence makes fun of eloquence. True morality makes fun of morality. To make fun of philosophy is to philosophize truly. And there's something here, you see. It's only, the, it's only the poet who will tell us in all sincerity that the poetry does not matter, whom we can trust, uh, to tell us in poetry what does. Beautiful poetry, but that's not enough. We're not here to be stirred with images that tell of our, of our condition, but we're here, Eliot feels, to discover where, in what direction redemption lies. Michelangelo, late in life, wrote, Neither painting nor sculpture will any longer charm the soul that is turned towards that divine love which opens out its arms on the cross to receive us. And Eliot is about that place. The poetry does not matter. It was not, to start again, what one had expected. What was to be the value of the long-looked-forward-to, long-hoped-for calm, the autumnal serenity and the wisdom of age? And that's what we've been told. That's what we've been promised. The tradition says, well, you see, you've, it'll come. You'll be seasoned by the seasons, and the day will come when you will arrive at this autumnal serenity in the wisdom of age. And Eliot says, well, where is it? He says, here I am in my 50s, and I've spent, a I've spent a good deal of my lifetime looking a little closer at my mortality than most people, and it isn't here. So where is it? I want to go on with that, but let me quote uh, Beatrice Bruteau. She says, it is one of the un 
recognized poverties of the affluent age that not many of us are, excuse me, that so many of us are unable to live with, work with, and learn from our sacred lore. The modern one-dimensional mind, weaned on scientific fact and newspaper reporting, takes only the simplistic external interpretation, cares only for the putative historical happening, and neither, excuse me, and either neglects or rejects the universal application of the mystery so presented. This shallow-mindedness prevents the great tradition from fulfilling its sacred function, that of gradually and developmentally unfolding to us the secrets of who and what we really are. Well, there's something, there's part of that going on here. Eliot is questioning the whole wisdom operation of culture. Had they deceived us or deceived themselves, the quiet, the voiced elders bequeathing us merely a receipt for deceit? The serenity only a deliberate hebitude, meaning lethargy. The serenity only a deliberate hebitude. The wisdom only the knowledge of dead secrets useless in the darkness into which they peered or from which they turned their eyes. There is, it seems to us, at best, only a limited value in the knowledge derived from experience. The knowledge imposes a pattern and falsifies, for the pattern is new in every moment, and every moment is a new and shocking valuation of all we have been. Now this is really cutting to the to the core. First of all, we'd, our access to the wisdom tradition is so is so perfunctory. Uh, we have we it gets passed on by by the Poloniuses of the world. You see, it gets passed on aphoristically, proverbially. Uh, and uh, here it is, and we're told, well, there's, there's, you know, autumnal serenity, and sooner or later you come to this place and all that, and Eliot says, it's not so. And I'm particularly struck by this only limited value in the knowledge derived from experience. Speaking here of our own experience and of the experience of others that others pass on to us. It could be argued, I don't think it's implicit in the poetry necessarily, but it could be argued, and it, it, it seems to me an argument that Eliot might have engaged in, that if, assuming I can learn uh, from either my own experience or somebody else's experience, I would be better off to learn from somebody else's than my own. Because the one thing that's important to learn is that I'm not the center of the universe. And, the, and the, one of the difficulties of learning solely from my own experience, or predominantly from my own experience, is that it, it, it allows me to maintain that uh, illusion. So, so as, as much as it goes against the modern grain to say so, I think there is a... There, or at least it's, it's an interesting piece of provocation to say, uh, assuming learning in both cases, uh, the, the better option would be to learn from somebody else. It it, it it achieves it, it at least moves us toward the one thing Eliot wants to move us towards, which is humility. But in but in any case, the problem is that there's only a limited value in the knowledge derived from experience, and that includes our own, because it imposes a pattern, and the real pattern 
is not the one that is imposed by what has happened in the past. The real pattern is another one altogether. It's much more free and elusive than that one. So we go through life with the real pattern happening all the while in front of us and the, and the pattern we have inherited or derived from the past going on in our heads. Every, the, for the pattern is new in every moment. And every moment is a new and shocking valuation of all we have been. So it's, it's not only new for us, but it's a new understanding of what in fact we have been and done. In this regard, I wanted to, to uh, quote something that Eliot wrote in an essay on Baudelaire. He said, one of the unhappy necessities of human existence is that we have to find out things for ourselves. If it were not so, the statement of Dante would, at least for poets, have done once and for all. But in the adjustment of the natural to the spiritual, of the bestial to the human, and the human to the supernatural, Baudelaire is a bungler compared to Dante. The best that can be said, and that is a very great deal, is that what he knew he found out for himself. Now, you, it, that, that little passage cuts both ways. It says, it says that... The truth is, you do have to find out things for yourself. But it's a melancholy truth. Because uh, what Baudelaire found out, the, what, what, he's, he's a value to us because of what he knew he found out for himself. But he's not as much value to us as Dante is because what he knew was much smaller than what Dante knew. Dante had access to a, to a tradition, or we might say the in Dante's time it was possible for the tradition to become an accessible experience, much more so than in our time. So this melancholy fact of having to find out for ourselves, it, it, Eliot's damning with faint praise. You know, the more we move into the modern world, the more we, our, our, our great accomplishments have to do with having found out for ourselves. Okay, one more passage in this. We are only undeceived of that which deceiving could no longer harm. In the middle, now, now he, of course, he's ref, making reference here to Dante's, the beginning of Dante's Divine Comedy. In the middle of our life journey, I found myself lost in a dark wood. That's the way the Divine Comedy begins. But Eliot updates that. In the middle, not only in the middle of the way, but all the way, in a dark wood, in a bramble, on the edge of a grimpen, where there is no secure foothold, and menaced by monsters, fancy lights, risking enchantment. Now, the, a grimpen is, uh, it turns out to be a kind of uh, dangerous bog that is referred to in Arthur Conan Doyle's The Hound of Baskervilles in which Dr. Watson says the following. Life has become like that great Grimpen mire with little green patches everywhere into which one may sink and no guide to point the track. And the, the word Grimpen is... You can't find it in your dictionary. It's hardly ever used. Uh, so Eliot uh, has made an obvious uh, rescue of this word so that it will have an echo with that 
with uh, its use in the uh, in the Arthur Conan Doyle novel. Life has become like that great Grimpen Mire with, notice, little green patches everywhere. Uh, little pieces of reassurance might might convince us that it's not it's not the Grimpen Mire after all. Into which one may sink with no guide to point the track. No guide to point the track. And that's what Elliot is trying to drive home here. Not only in the middle of the way, but all the way in a dark wood, a bramble on the edge of a Grimpen, where no secure foothold and menaced by monsters, fancy lights risking enchantment. And now we come back to this question. Fancy lights risking enchantment. That's what he wants to cut off. Elliot wants to say, what we would like to do is tell ourselves, you know, we would like to whistle by the graveyard. We would like at this point to tell ourselves a nice, comfortable piece of mythology. And he, Elliot wants to, uh, to uh, assert that that will not do. Let me quote again one more. Pa- uh, actually, no, I have two more. It turns out from Jacques Maritain. I, I don't know why Elliot got me going back to Jacques Maritain, but he says, The artist is subject in the sphere of his art to a kind of asceticism which may require heroic sacrifices. He must be thoroughly undeviating as regards the end of his art, perpetually on guard, not only against the banal attraction of easy execution and success, but against a multitude of more subtle temptations and against the slightest relaxation of his interior effort. He must pass through spiritual nights, purifying himself without ceasing, voluntarily abandoning fertile regions for regions that are barren and full of insecurity. And to me, it's that last phrase that speaks of Eliot saying, what we're menaced by on this Grimpen is not only the monsters, but the fancy lights and the, and the enchantment that the monsters frighten us into. So then he goes on, Do not let me hear of the wisdom of old men, but rather of their folly, their fear of fear and frenzy. Their fear of possession, of belonging to another or to others or to God. Now that is where it finally comes out. Does he unveil it right there? The fear of fear and the fear of frenzy and the fear most of all of possession, of belonging to another or to others or to God. And the fear of belonging to another or to others or to God is all one fear. It's the modern fear, the fear that somehow I will be irrevocably entangled with others or an other. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. Now we've, you know, I, I've had this that line running through my head for 20 years, so it's it's hard for me to get uh, go back and have it be fresh as it needs to be here. That's a breakthrough. You see, the only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Walk down the street and realize how how much in need of grace we are. And how, 
how, how inaccessible it is through any acts of our own. That's what it is. The wisdom of humility. That humility is the path to life and truth. Just humility. Not knowledge, not wisdom, not all of that. The poetry doesn't matter. <laughs> it's just a way of sorting it out for us and getting us back to that place. Concludes so wonderfully here. The houses are all gone under the sea. The dancers are all gone under the hill. Sort of grand archetypal images for uh, history, linear history, and uh, the cyclical prehistory uh, pattern that he that he uh, seduced us with early in the poem. The houses are all gone, and the dancers are all gone. It comes down to Eliot refusing to take the deep lane that insists on the direction to the village on one hand, and on the other hand, refusing to, to engage in this kind of regression to this fanciful, cyclical pattern. Because that finally turns out to be dancing around a bonfire. The difficulties Eliot encountered in delivering his poetic message to his contemporaries is a matter of literary history. There are several dimensions to these difficulties, but one of them clearly is and was that the poet is intensely conscious of the fact of mortality, not only of his own mortality, but of the mortal factor in all human enterprise. And his audience was making Herculean efforts to camouflage the fact of death and its larger implications. And Eliot knows from his own spiritual journey how important a confrontation with death is in terms of a, a, a prerequisite for appreciating the Christian mysteries. His transitional poem in that respect is called Ash Wednesday, the day on which, on which we are told is from dust you come and to dust you shall return. As long as these strategies for avoiding mortality and its larger consequences are working, or to the degree that they are working, Eliot was deprived of a serious audience. The overcoming of these strategies, or the outflanking of them, is a prerequisite both for the understanding of Eliot's later poetry and for the mature religious life. Eliot had a task before him somewhat similar to the task that Ernest Becker took on as his task, in one, at least in uh, one of his books, his last one, entitled The Denial of Death. I think a very important book for our age. And I just I went to Becker's book and lifted out a little passage from the from the first part of the book uh, to get a feel for the dilemma that Becker felt, which I think is identical to the dilemma that Eliot felt. Here's how Becker put it: Society is and always has been a symbolic action system, a structure of statuses and roles, customs and rules for behavior designed to serve as a vehicle for earthly heroism. Each script is somewhat unique. Each culture has a different hero system. It doesn't matter whether the culture hero system 
is frankly magical, religious, and primitive, or secular, scientific, and civilized. It is still a mythical hero system in which people serve in order to earn a feeling of primary value, of cosmic specialness, of ultimate usefulness to creation, of unshakable meaning. They earn this feeling by carving out a place in nature, by building an edifice that reflects human value, a temple, a cathedral, a totem pole, a skyscraper, a family that spans three generations. The hope and belief is that the things that man creates in society are of lasting worth and meaning, that they outlive or outshine death and decay, that man and his products count. To become conscious of what one is doing, to earn his feeling of heroism, is the main self-analytic problem of life. Everything painful and sobering in what psychoanalytic genius and religious genius have discovered about man revolves around the terror of admitting what one is doing to earn his self-esteem. Now, about halfway through that passage, you, you, know, you know what's coming and you, you, you try to get out of its way. <laughs> your little mind, you see, your little mind is trying to figure out how it is that doesn't apply to you. <laughs> <laughs> Eliot felt it necessary to, because he himself had experienced it, to help administer the ontological shock of mortality to those who were trying to receive his poetic message. At the very end of section two of East Coker, after he had prepared symbolically for the, for the allusions in these two lines, he left the matter this way. The houses are all gone under the sea. The dancers are all gone under the hill. And that, I think, is a way of covering the whole spectrum. It all is subject to entropy. And if we were to uh, splice the Becker piece that I just shared with Eliot, we could see echoes. Uh, Becker says that these uh, cultural, structural hero systems, which help immunize us against the fact of our mortality, can either be secular, scientific, or civilized, or magical, religious, or primitive. In the houses are all gone under the sea. We can see a reference to the historical or the, or the secular, scientific, civilized enterprises. And in the dancers are all gone under the hill, we can see a reference, which used to say it this way, to magical, religious, and primitive social arrangements. But in either case, they all are subject to this entropy which each is trying to camouflage. Neither the tradition of which Eliot is the spokesman in these poems, nor Eliot himself, nor in my estimation Ernest Becker, wants to leave us on the threshold of nihilism to which the ontological shock has been known to lead people. They, Eliot and the tradition especially want to do something else with this ontological shock. 
and what they want to do is summed up. I'm going to quote a fair amount from Sebastian Moore today, and what they and I'll begin with this one. What they do is summed up in a in a very brief passage from Moore, uh, and it goes this way. Uh, this is in the context of Moore's uh, treatment of the resurrection, the crucifixion, resurrection, and he says so. It looks as though dying you destroyed our death. A dying you destroyed our death is the is the first part of a, of a of an acclamation in the mass that occurs right after the consecration, Eucharistic consecration. Uh, dying you destroyed our death, rising you restored our life. So uh, Sebastian Moore says, so it looks as though dying you destroyed our death misses it. He did not destroy our death. He restored it. He made it work. Uh, I, before we go on, you see, it works if it provides the ontological shock. We've, we've talked about this here before in playful terms. You know, nobody but God would have come up with death. See? Uh, it, it's, the, it's the very thing that is capable, uh, under the right circumstances, of, uh, of making us fully conscious and teaching us how to love. Uh, so death has to somehow work, and culture is designed to keep it from working. So he's back to Sebastian Moore. So it looks as though dying you destroyed our death misses it. He did not destroy our death. He restored it. He made it work. He took it out of the bushes along the way, stuck it right up in front of us, and took us through it. Huh? That's what the tradition wants to do. Because it is in the face of our mortality that we cower. So he begins this third section with the lines, Oh, dark, 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 they all go into the dark, the vacant interstellar spaces. Now, the, uh, Eliot gets this from uh, Milton's Samson Agonistes. Earlier we did that poem by uh, Kipling, uh, The Road Through the Woods, and I had said that was a carbon date to those who were around when we did it. This is, I don't know how many, uh, was anybody here around when we did Samson Agonistes? That was one of those, there was almost nobody around then. That was one of those acts of economic harry-carry that I committed early on, <laughs> trying, to get, trying to get people to sit through Samson Agonistes. <laughs> anyway, Milton's early, Milton, I mean, excuse me, Samson's first speech in uh, Samson Agonistes, you, you have to picture this now because Eliot is picking up on, on the echoes. Samson is a prisoner in a Philistine society which is pagan worshipping, occult worshipping, and he is blind. And, of course, Milton was blind when he wrote Samson Agonistes, so it is Milton's way of working out his own dilemma as well. Uh, so trapped in a Philistine society and uh, blind. So here's here's how uh, I, I want to read a, uh, to get a feel for Milton and then go back to Eliot. Samson says this: Oh, dark, 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 amid the blaze of noon, irrecoverably dark, total eclipse, without all hope of day. Oh, first created beam, and thou great word, let there be light, and light was over all. Why am I thus bereaved, thy prime decree? The sun to me is dark and silent as the moon when she deserts the night. 
hid in her vacant interlunar cave. You get that in Elliot, you see, the vacant interstellar species, the vacant interstellar spaces. The, the theme here in Milton is to be in the darkness when everybody else in the pagan, surrounding pagan culture is experiencing the blaze of noon. Oh, dark, 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 amid the blaze of noon. So there is in Eliot's part three at the beginning a contrast between the darkness and what is the blaze of noon. Now, Milton knew, how do we say this? Milton knew that Samson knew that the truth is that the Philistines experiencing the blazing noon were themselves in the dark and Samson was in the light. So, here's how Eliot's passage goes. O dark, 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 they all go into the dark. The vacant interstellar spaces, the vacant into the vacant, the captains, merchant bankers, eminent men of letters, the generous patrons of art, the statesmen and the rulers, distinguished civil servants, chairmen of many committees, industrial lords and petty contractors all go into the dark and dark the sun and moon, and the almanac, the Goda, and the stock exchange gazette, the directory of directors, and cold the sense and lost the motive of action. Milton said the uh, vacant interlunar cave, and Eliot says the vacant interstellar spaces. In echoing Milton, he, in a sense, is playing, I don't know why I keep thinking of this metaphor of the trump card, he, he's in a sense playing the trump card. One of the things, there's a little parody on, W.S. Merwin said, if you cease to believe, build a bigger temple. The, the parody of that is that if you, uh, if, if, if what you're, if who you are or if your life or somehow if what you're up to is beginning to be impinged upon by the fact of mortality, affiliate yourself with a larger organism. Uh, one that will somehow seem to outflank it like, like, uh, as Becker says, a family lasting three generations, or a, a corporation, or, or a nation, or a civilization, or something that somehow gives you some sense that it uh, what you what you do, your contribution lives on. A kind of that kind of sense of thing. But when Eliot says the vacant interstellar spaces, he sort of takes care of that. Whatever it is that you're doing will probably not outlive the the cooling of the sun. <laughs> five billion years from now the sun will cool and whatever it is you were doing will go into the interstellar vacancy <laughs> it, it, so he makes this list of, uh, of the blaze of noon this is to say these are the prominent ones it applies to us all as he's about to remind us uh, but it's those who stand most gloriously in the blaze of noon that he starts with uh, the, the uh, captains and merchant bankers and eminent men of letters, etc., etc. The Almanac de Goda is a, is a genealogy of European royal families. The Stock Exchange Gazette is what it sounds like it is, and the Directory of Directors was a, a listing uh, of the English uh, boards of directors of major corporate enterprises in England. So that, those are uh, predictable references. But then he says, and cold the sense and lost the motive of action, 
which is the, the little piece of revelation in this, because uh, when, when most of the time uh, we look at uh, captains, merchant bankers, eminent men of letters, patrons of the arts, uh, statesmen, rulers, etc., etc., what we see is, uh, is uh, people who are indeed attuned with their senses to the world they're living in, and people who preeminently have a sense of direction and a motive and a, and a, uh, a journey that they're on, a purpose that they're devoted to, and so on. But the poet as prophet is summing up the situation, which is, and cold the sense, and lost the motive of action. We must not mistake uh, kinetic energy for direction. And, uh, and apparent brilliance for something really radiating. And then he says, and we all go with them into the silent funeral, nobody's funeral, for there's no one to bury. Well, in this, uh, these two lines I just quoted, I, I saw them one way and then suddenly I saw them another way and they don't appear to be compatible and I think maybe they're both true. I, I don't know. I'll share them with you. It's a silent funeral, nobody's funeral, for there is no one to bury. I think this, perhaps taking it socially, what he's saying is that all of those, all of those bold assertions of identity have resulted in faceless non-entity. When all is said and done, uh, there is not sufficient real, genuine personality there uh, to uh, to measure up to what personality ought to be. You know, the old story, the, the, the story of selling one's soul to the devil, is almost always a, a barter in which what we get is the semblance of selfhood, and what we barter away is the is the, the soul of the self. So there's nobody's funeral, for there is no one to bury. That's finally what it comes down to. All of the, all of the effort to become unique, to become an individual, finally turns us into indistinguishable uh, entities. And the other way of seeing it is a more personal one, which is that try as I may, my funeral and my grave will very shortly be nobody's. Or as Eliot puts it later on, old stones that cannot be deciphered. Which led me to a little meditation. I'll, let me share it with you. Except that tombstones and grave sites provide the living with reminders of mortality and with loves and affections that may make the living more real. We might insist on the elimination of named grave markers. To decorate graves and tombs is to flirt with a cheap and tawdry parody of resurrection that obscures the real one and estranges us from its promise by obscuring death's chronological catastrophe. 
with mere granite or bronze or brass. And if that isn't the hair of the dog that bit you, I don't know what is. You see, it's what if we wouldn't allow that? What if we take what if we take the dead body, wrap it in burlap, and uh, throw it into the sea, or bury it, or burn it, and walk away? Now there is something to be said for leaving graveyards around uh, around the landscape. <laughs> <laughs> because every once in a while you'll stumble upon one and it might remind you of your mortality. So I'm in favor of gra graveyards. <laughs> uh, let me go on record as being in favor of graveyards. <laughs> but, but you see what I'm saying is the is my grave will very quickly become nobody's. And I must know that. Whatever little, what Becker calls immortality projects, I might leave behind. Think of it, folks. Someday after I'm gone, somebody will somebody will happen on to a tape that I did on Babette's Feast. Immortality! Immortality! Eliot says, they all will go. Our grave will be nobody's grave. It may take a couple of months. It may take a couple of decades. But it won't take long. Then he says, in contrast to this litany of uh, people living prominently in the in the blaze of noon, I said to my soul, "Be still, and let the dark come upon you, which shall be the darkness of God." And then he provides three wonderful metaphors for what that's like to, to, to engage in the contemplative work, to let the darkness come on. As in a theater, the lights are extinguished for the scene to be changed with a hollow rumble of wings, with a movement of darkness on darkness, and we know that the hills and the trees, the distant panorama, and the bold, imposing facade are all being rolled away. Or as when an underground train in the tube stops too long between stations, and the conversation rises and slowly fades into silence, and you see behind every face the mental emptiness deepen leaving only the growing terror of nothing to think about. Or when, under ether, the mind is conscious but conscious of nothing. For the scene to be changed. This is, this really is the wonderful metaphor for, for a kind of paradigmatic shift. Scene to be changed with a hollow rumble of wings. Now, of course, he's talking about the wings on a, in a theater, you see. But how wonderful it is that Eliot always has this way of... So it, it does have a... Con it's hollow, you see. when he, he The word hollow puts us in touch with the unsettling and, uh, and uh, difficult part of this. 
I particularly like the phrase, with the hollow rumble of wings, does have this double meaning. One can recite that as a mantra until finally one feels uh, the resurrection coming through it. With a hollow rumble of wings. And we know that the hills and the trees, the distant panorama, and I particularly like this, the bold, imposing facade. Guess what that is? <laughs> See, that's... That's my sense of who I am. The bold, imposing facade are all being rolled away. All of this, I think, is of a piece with Eliot's insistence earlier that we must uh, be involved in the evacuation of the world of fancy. We must be weaned from our, from our fancy-creating consciousness, the consciousness that is constantly involved in the maya, in moving the, the features of the maya around and shaking it and animating it and fascinating ourselves with it. What one is breaking with here, and Elliot, what Eliot's recommending that we break with, is what Barfield calls original participation or primitive participation. And so let me just call up Barfield's scheme for those of you who are not familiar with it. Uh, Barfield sees human anthropology in terms of emerging from a primitive participation in the world uh, in which we in which we are primarily superstitious with regard to each other and the natural world and ourselves and and uh, so on we we emerge from the original participation into a period of uh, of uh, of barrenness in a way a kind of iconoclasm the 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 wilderness experience where it is neither this nor that, the desert of empirical factuality. Barfield says that's a transitional stage. What we move towards is what he calls final participation, which he equates with what Jesus called the kingdom. And we might equate it with what we've been calling here the sacramental consciousness. So to move from superstitious consciousness to sacramental consciousness by way of uh, the desert of empirical fact. We can't recognize our original participation purely in terms of superstition because superstition is out these days. So just because we are not superstitious in the way that a primitive might be, we shouldn't lead ourselves to believe that therefore we do not live in original participation. I think the best way for us to, to uh, appraise our uh, situation vis-a-vis -vis original participation is to say that we live in original participation when and to the degree that we derive our identities from the social order. Such identities, as Eliot's trying to point out in the poem, are too fear-ridden and too time-ridden to perceive the world sacramentally. So back to Eliot. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love for the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be light, and the stillness the dancing. Now, we have here Paul's great virtues, which he says always abide, faith, hope, and love. 
And the greatest of these is love. And Eliot would certainly concur. But you'll notice that Eliot is much more cautious than Paul is. Eliot says you must learn to wait without hope, without love, for you would be hoping and hoping for the wrong thing and loving the wrong thing. And faith is just another word for waiting, being willing to wait. And at this moment, it's another word for being willing to wait. I think the difference between Paul's uh, unreserved recommendation of faith, hope, and love and Eliot's more qualified uh, recommendation of them is that between Paul and Eliot lies romanticism. And one of the things Eliot knows about himself and us is that we are very much products of romanticism and that it's very easy for us to revert to it. What what romanticism would have us do with with desire and memory and what T.S. Eliot and the mystics would have us do with desire and memory are two totally different things. And so Eliot says, wait without hope and wait without love. Just wait. And wait without thought, by the way. (laughs) Just wait. And the darkness shall be the light and the stillness the dancing. And then I think the next few lines are a little example of the difference between how the Romantic uh, age would have us invest our desire and memory and how the informed uh, Christian mystic would have us invest our desire and memory. Whisper of running streams and winter lightning, the wild thyme unseen and the wild strawberry, the laughter in the garden, echoed ecstasy, not lost, but requiring, pointing to the agony of death and birth. Now that is a mouthful, and I want to... Uh, Raymond Preston, one of the commentators on this, says, Eliot is suggesting moments of illumination in the flux of time, which are reassurances of a reality that conquers the flux. Whisper of running streams, and while we're at it, laughter in the garden, seem to me to allude to to moments when one feels or or senses a, a voice. One senses in in a special moment, a, a calling, calling, a vocation means we hear a voice. One senses, not, but it doesn't form words, it doesn't, it's not explicit, it doesn't even help direct us, really. But one senses something there other than just uh, happenstance, just kind of random. There's a sense of something there. Whisper of running streams, laughter in the garden. And winter lightning seems to me to point to those moments that Eliot has referred to many times, which are kind of little, brief little epiphanies, little uh, uh, sort of the, the, the classic Eliot image for this is uh, sunlight on a column. 
There's just that moment when suddenly the, the sun comes across and hits a certain way or winter lightning. A moment of revelation and then it's gone. I want to spend a little time doing a midrash on uh, wild time unseen in the wild strawberry. I say midrash because a midrash is, is, is greater critical license uh, if you do a midrash than if you do a literary interpretation. A midrash is you can just you can just let your hair down and go at it. Uh, I th- the, mid- the, the criteria I'm using is I think what I think it's true, and I think it's also a truth towards which Eliot's poetry is pointing us. Uh, but uh, in terms of whether Eliot had it in, had it in mind when he wrote it is another thing. Although I think he may have. I think he may have. So here's the line I want to work with. The wild time unseen in the wild strawberry. In Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, Oberon wants to uh, put uh, the fairy queen Titania to sleep and have Puck... uh, put the juices on her eyes that will make her, when she awakens, fall in love with the first creature she sees. And he says, uh, Oberon says to Puck, I know a bank where the wild thyme blows. Now, let's not forget, uh, Shakespeare, I don't think, forgot. Uh, Eliot, I'm sure, didn't forget, and we shouldn't. Uh, the, the felicitous opportunity we have with the pun on wild time, okay? That's part of the meaning of this reference, the wild time. So Oberon says to Puck, I know a bank where the wild time blows. There sleeps Titania sometime of the night, lulled in these flowers with dances and delight. And there the snake throws her enameled skin, weed wide enough to wrap a fairy in. Wonderful, playful poetry. Uh, but what he, Oberon is saying to Puck is, I know where you can administer this this uh, ointment to Titania and uh, enchant her. And it is in the field where the wild time grows, where the wild time blows. Just so you get a feel for what, what it is that's being administered, here's how Oberon describes to Puck uh, the, the, the magical... I saw, but thou couldst not, flying between the cold moon and the earth, Cupid all armed, a a certain aim he took, at a fair vestal throned by the west, and loosed his love shaft smartly from his bow, as it should pierce a hundred thousand hearts. But I might see young Cupid's fiery shaft quenched in the chaste beams of the watery moon, and the imperial votaress passed on, yet marked I where the bolt of Cupid fell. It fell upon a little western flower, before milk-white, now purple with love's wound. And maids call it love in idleness. Fetch me that flower, the herb I showed thee once. The juice of it on sleeping eyelids laid will make our man or woman madly dote upon the next live creature that it sees. So that's what that's the the ointment, is that is that uh, that which makes us fall passionately, romantically in love 
And it's administered, as Shakespeare would have it, where the wild thyme blows. The word thyme comes from the Greek word which means a uh, burnt offering or a sacrifice. I think it's possible that Eliot got the wild strawberry reference from a poem by Robert Herrick, 17th century English poet, entitled The Mad Maid's Song. She says, Good morrow to the day so fair, good morrow, sir, to you. Good morrow to my own torn hair bedabbled with the dew. Ah, woe is me, woe, woe is me, alack, and well a day. For pity, sir, find out that bee which bore my love away. I'll seek him in your bonnet brave. I'll seek him in your eyes. Nay, now I think they've made his grave in the bed of strawberries. If we take those as possible references and we turn back to the poetry, the wild thyme unseen and the wild strawberry, laughter in the garden, echoed ecstasy, not lost, but requiring, pointing to the agony of birth and death, excuse me, of death and birth. So these moments in the of, of wild time and wild strawberry are not in the future. They're, they're, these are moments we've all had. We've all had moments in the wild time, the wild time unseen, and we've all had the moments uh, in the, among the wild strawberries. And what Elliot is saying is that they are echoed ecstasies. And that however spiritually immature and ultimately unsatisfying they may have been, they're not to be condemned out of hand. They're not lost, he says. Not lost. They're echoed ecstasies. Not lost. But on the contrary, they can take on genuine meaning, a meaning which was hidden in their original experience and is still stored there, if we, if we can remember them the right way. The wild time, I think we could associate with the moment of enchantment and the wild strawberry with the moment of disenchantment. Or to put it in biblical terms, the wild time could be associated with the Garden of Eden and the wild strawberry with the Garden of Gethsemane. Not lost, but requiring. Pointing, and this is where it becomes a little uh, unexpected, pointing to the agony of death and birth. Here's what Sebastian Moore says about asceticism. The conventional view of asceticism is that it means denying ourselves what we want. A more discerning and disconcerting view is that it means dropping things we no longer want, admitting to ourselves we no longer want them, and thus giving our journey, our story, a chance to move on. And so Eliot says those things are echoed ecstasy, not lost, but requiring, the word requiring means to ask again, to seek again. Those moments are requiring because we, we should not forget them. We should go back and say, what did I really want and what do I want? The poem says, pointing to the agony of death and birth. Now, that seems strange. Why is that? Okay, here's what Sebastian Moore says. What we learn from the cross is not to deny our desires, to push them down, but on the contrary, to attend to them, to ask them, what do I want? 
and hence to begin to learn the difference between the compulsive, unfree, addictive movements that go by the name of desire and give desire a bad name and the elan vital in us of which these compulsive movements are the arrest, the dead ending. The difference between the desire of the ego to stay where it is and simply to repeat past satisfactions and the desire that can say, I want to want more. And that alone leads to the suffering with Christ. Eliot's next line is, You say, I am repeating something I have said before. I shall say it again. Shall I say it again? The I here in this sentence, I think, is not so much the eye of the poet as it is the eye of the Christian tradition. And what he repeats is almost, well, it's not quite, it's very close to a passage in John of the Cross's The Ascent of Mount Carmel. Eliot says, in order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by way in which, excuse me, go by way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing you know, and what you own is what you do not own, and where you are is where you are not. Now, that's simply describing the movement out of what Barfield calls per, uh, original participation into the desert experience as a preliminary to moving on into a sacramental reality. And it comes right out. It's just a further uh, nuancing of the core tradition. Jesus says you have to lose your life in order to find it. So Eliot says, be still. I said to my soul, be still and be patient to wait, but to be patient is also to be the patience on which the operation is performed. And here's what Eliot says works on us, and this is part four of East Coker. The wounded surgeon plies the steel that questions the distempered part. Beneath the bleeding hands we feel the sharp compassion of the healer's art, resolving the enigma of the fever chart. The wounded surgeon, of course, is Christ, and we are the diseased patient. And the sharp compassion will resolve the enigma of the fever chart. And that, I think, offers us some wonderful opportunities. The fever chart, the enigma of the fever chart in the literal sense is that we are hot and chilled at the same time. Uh, the enigma of the fever chart in the spiritual sense is this uh, movement, if you allow me to picture it this way, from what Eliot called uh, the, the uh, world of appetency, the world of appetite, from appetency to desire to longing to love. So that though we may begin life in appetency, in uh, responding to, to appetite, living, uh, finding direction in our appetites, there is a journey there. There is an enigma, which is that it can lead from appetency to desire to longing 
and then to love.